Welcome, Caw Prairie, and I'm glad to be here with you. I am sitting with Doug and Shannon Folk from Caw Prairie. Shannon is the president of our congregation, and Doug and Shannon are longtime friends and servants in the kingdom of God. Today is one of our messages in the series, Let's Talk About It, Stigmas in the Church. And the stigma that we're talking about today is divorce. Both Doug and Shannon have been divorced and are happily remarried, and that's the question we're going to be asking them about in the minutes to come. Doug and Shannon, tell us your story. How did you meet? We met um, through a friend of mine. Um, name is Mike, and he was a friend of mine in college, and then uh, later a roommate. Um, and he kept t- telling me about this cousin that he wanted to fix me up with. And, and I said, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with any relative of yours. <laughs> um, so I kind of fought that off for a couple of years and, and finally relented. And uh, he, he set us up on a, on a date. And, and Mike, I didn't mention, Mike is Shannon's cousin. Okay. So kind of similar story for me. It was about five years because um, he tried right after we, right after I got divorced. We got divorced pretty close to the same time. And um, he was always saying, man, I got this guy that you really should meet. And I was saying the same thing. I am not going to go out with a friend of yours. I'm just not going to do it. And what good would it do? Because I lived in Hutchinson. He lived in Kansas City. Why would I date someone when, you know, I had a, I was on a career path with my company and you know, I had kids and, you know, didn't want to uproot them. So it didn't make sense to even meet anyone from Kansas City. So, Well, I look forward to meeting Mike, whom at the time anyway, you seem to help <laughs> Pretty not so high esteem. <laughs> <laughs> we love, we love Mike. So yeah, the president of our congregation was married and divorced at a young age. Now there was a time when that might have been scandalous. It's not now, and it's certainly not here. But the cool thing is, is that it reminds us of a of a truism that if you know your Bible, uh, you already know. And that's my first point today. Divorce has always been around, even among God's people. In fact, the very first people that God called to be his chosen people, Abraham and Sarah, they experienced, you know, in kind of the polygamous way that the early early patriarchs lived, they experienced an issue with divorce. And in fact, so Abraham and Sarah Um, If you remember the story, they were promised to be given a multitude of descendants, but they were both very old, 90 and 100 years old. They didn't really trust God was going to do it. And so they hatched this plan, really. Sarah, Mrs. Abraham, hatched the plan, you know, I don't think this is going to work. You should sleep with my servant, Hagar, she says to her husband. And uh, he chooses to agree with her, sleeps with Hagar, and then gets pregnant. So I want to read to you from Genesis 16 what happens then. So Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Can't you just feel her broken heart? I mean, also her There's a lot of feelings and a lot of good and bad things here, but her broken heart, her fear, her insecurity. Abram replied, 
look, she's your servant, so you make the decision. You deal with her as you see fit. So Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Now the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness alongside the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord replied to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can even count, which is very similar to the promise that God gave to Abram and Sarah. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. So divorce happens to ordinary people. It happens to us nowadays, and it happened to the very first, now the very first Hebrew family that God called. And the Genesis story of Abraham and Sarah, I guess at this point they were still Abram and Sarai before they got their names changed, um, reveals a whole bunch of human typical shortcomings. I mean, there's, I mentioned the insecurity that, that Sarah had after her maidservant got pregnant by her husband. And then the immaturity of Hagar, who, who used this, this privilege that she had in being the, the bearer of her master's child to, to look down at her mistress. So, but her immaturity also was tied with insecurity because she didn't have any sort of, any sort of legal standing in the family. And then there's the then there's the apathy or the or the I don't know in uh, abdication of of Abraham who said she's your problem you deal with it whatever you decide is okay and then and then the the sin of kind of picking an easy answer for a complex problem that all of them used right Abram you deal with it Sarai um, I'll be mean to her and then Hagar I'll run away all these different things. They show kind of the emotions that swirl when there's, when there's trouble and heartache in a family. And one of the things that came up in our conversation, my conversation with Doug and Shannon, was, was how the family of faith responded to, particularly Shannon's situation, Doug also speaks on it too, in giving help to her boys as they were going through the divorce. Take a listen now. One thing that I kind of will talk to people about is you're kind of in a grieving experience. And just like with grief, you can't rush that. Um, you can't really rush that grief from getting divorced. I remember a man from church um, several years after I was divorced uh, was an older man and his, like in his 80s. Um, and we would go to the movies with the kids or to dinner and, and he was telling me, you know, it just kind of dawned on me that um, when my wife died, everybody brought me food and supported me and, you know, you're taking me to kids' movies and to dinner. And he said, I kind of realized we didn't do any of that for you. But divorce is kind of a grieving, it's a loss thing yeah. too. And it is, um, I think I grieved mainly, not necessarily for myself, but for my, the idea that I had that um, I would never have my children come from a broken home. And so I had this vision of how we would live in the same house forever and the kids would be happy and healthy. And um, I really had to grieve the loss of that dream more so than the relationship. Because a lot of times by the time you get divorced, you're, you're grieving more the idea of it rather than, you know, the person. 
So um, I think you do need to take that time and make sure you kind of figure out who you are. I think both of us were married pretty young and um, you got to figure out who am I not as a couple anymore, but as a person and not only who am I now, but who do I want to be? How do, how do I find that person who I really, I want to be and that God wants me to be before I jump into another relationship? That's that's a powerful distinction that I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. You're grieving the, the loss of a dream. Yeah. And, and even just the disruption um, in your life, no matter how amicable the, the divorce is, and I, I feel like mine was pretty amicable, um, it, it, your whole world is turned upside down. All of your routines are gone. Um, you have to, you have to figure out how and where you're going to live. You have to, you have to figure out friends. Um, you know, even church, I, for me, um, I had to go find somewhere else to worship. Um, my ex was pretty clear that she wanted to stay where we had been going to church. And, and so I had to go somewhere else. I had to find something else. So it's just, regardless of, of how amicable it is, I, it, it's just this massive disruption in your routine. And you're just, you're going to feel disoriented for a while. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, useful and interesting and relevant that you both shared you were active in a church when you were divorced. And did being part of a church give you any extra support or sense of comfort or, or, or maybe the opposite, you felt more guilty or something? I think there was, in my church, I came from a pretty conservative church, um, and no one, at least anybody that still went there, had ever been divorced before. So, um, and my husband had never gone to church. I just, it was the church I grew up in. My grandparents were there and, you know, the kids were there, they were baptized and, um, but it was, you know, it was just kind of like, well, we just won't talk about it. Um, but I will say the men of the church took up my oldest son, Aaron, who was 13 at the time. And they just kind of rallied around him, but not saying anything they would be like you know hey I was gonna work on my truck today it would be really helpful if Aaron would come help me Um, I could use his help today or you know I'm we're gonna go out to church camp and there's a lot we're gonna do Um, it'd be really helpful if Aaron could come out there and I could teach him how to do plumbing um, so that you know he could help me with this and so they kind of under the radar stepped in and became um, father figures to him without ever saying the words out loud um, and as you know, Aaron can now do plumbing, electrical, tile. He actually has a home building and a roofing business. And it's all because those men in the church just stepped in and said, you know, I don't know really what I'm going to do with Shannon because that, I don't really know what that is. But I know what I can do um, for Aaron. And then also I was working um, at a soup kitchen one time and one of the older gentlemen that was there, we were riding in the car together and we were delivering meals to homes. And he was, he did ask me, you know, what, what is it that you, you need? It feels like, you know, there's a lot going on. You've had to move out of your home. What, what is it that I could help with? I was like, oh, I'm fine. I don't need help. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I got this. And he's like, you know, it's kind of a slap in God's face when someone wants to be blessed by helping you and God sends them to you and you say, yeah, I don't need this, I got this. 
So I, I remember that a lot because it's not easy for me to accept help. But um, I think being part of the church, it did make me feel guilty at first, but I don't know how I would have, um, I, I would have made it, but certainly not as successfully without the support of really strong um, men just stepping up, usually in their 70s and 80s, just stepping in and saying, we got this. So Shannon named some costs right there, including the loss of that dream about what what she as a mom would be, what her children's life would be like. And that's just one of the, the, the griefs and losses that people who are going through divorce or have been divorced share. I think, but it's an example of my, my second point, which is divorce always has a cost. Usually, divorced people will say the cost of getting divorced was less, less pain, less fear, than the cost of staying married. But there are people who get divorced who in retrospect think the cost of divorce was too high and they wish they hadn't agreed to pay it. They wish they had stayed married. Divorce always has a cost though. And as Shannon has said, especially on children. You know, author Elizabeth Marquardt has some great insights about this. And I'm going to read a few things uh, from what she said. I might summarize a couple, but one of them was, she said, one of the big challenges for any marriage is to bring together two worlds, right? So the husband and the wife, two different backgrounds and often different values. The rubbing together of these two worlds is often not neat or pretty, but in the end, some kind of unity is established. The problem is, is when, when those two parents divorce, it's the children that have to then figure out how the, their one unified reality, how that makes sense now that there are two, the dads and the moms, the, 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 the mans and the womans. And it says the conflicts that arose between the husband and the wife, they don't go away in divorce. They get passed down to the child. The child has to negotiate by himself or herself the different beliefs and values of each, parents, of each parent, and their two worlds get more different as each year goes by. Children who grew up traveling between the parents' two worlds start to feel early on that they now have to figure out the difference and the reasons for these two different worlds. What's right and what's wrong in each one? Which, which parent should I believe? What do I believe about everything? Where do I belong? Do I even belong? Not just in a parent's house or apartment or condo or with their new family, but, but anywhere in the world. Is there a God? and what is true. In fact, their studies, uh, Marquardt said, they're much more likely than kids of non-divorced parents to see their parents as polar opposites, even if they don't fight. You know, I mentioned Hagar is the first wife, the first divorced wife who was kicked out of her home. Listen to how her son is described in Genesis 16, uh, 16 verse 12, not as a punishment to him. It's not, it's not God punishing them for getting divorced or running away from home. But it's just a description of the natural consequence of his mother's ejection from the family. The angel said to Hagar, This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Elizabeth Marquardt goes on to say, many people have noticed that the children of divorce often seem independent. I mean, you and I know that. There's some incredibly gifted and sometimes even um, 
Yeah, sometimes really outstanding children who come from separations or divorced homes, they tend to help around the house, travel between the parents' homes alone, or even take care of the younger siblings by themselves. Marquardt says they also had to become independent moral thinkers to make sense of the, the world that got broken into two and the two different value systems that they now alternate between. Some people might say, well, this, is, this need to be independent is a good thing. And yeah, some kids can rise to the occasion, and, and you and I know many that do, but they lose something that they never get back. They lose their childhoods. And no matter what other skills, no matter how good their resume is gonna look, that's not necessarily a cause for celebration, but a cause for mourning. And then there's some children who simply can't rise to the task, independent of any, any qualities about them. Sometimes there's so much headwind. In fact, the children of divorce are two to three times more likely than other children to end up with serious social and emotional problems. The ones who can't handle the difficulty of making sense of two worlds, they might be the ones who choose to numb their pain by becoming addicted to alcohol, drugs, or sexual activity or who suffer from depression. And about their religious faith, Marquardt says this, they discovered that children of divorce are far less likely when they grow up to say they are religious, even a little religious. They're far less likely to attend a house of worship frequently or to be a member or a leader there. Partly this is because the children are less likely to have been involved in church as a child. And we get that, right? It's logistically difficult. Many of you are divorced. You know how hard it is if you're sharing custody, you're trying to arrange transportation, they've got soccer practice, soccer games. You've got to get there for now each new family's celebrations and whatnot. It's very difficult logistically for parents to stay connected to a particular church or, or even to two different churches. But there are deeper issues, Marquardt says. For example, and this broke my heart. Some of you who've been in my office know that I have this uh, hey-key painting of the prodigal son, the, the, the son returning home and the, the, the father wrapping his arms around him and, and, and accepting him and welcoming him. He's been waiting for this rebellious son to come home for so long. But Marquardt says, when children divorce here that God is like a father or a parent because God's always there for you, there's a disconnect. For them, parental absence is as common as an experience as parental presence. She writes, it's remarkable to talk to the children of divorce about the prodigal son parable, where the father waits for the son to come home because children of divorce recognize the act of leaving home. But in their worlds, it's not the child who leaves, it's the parent. Divorce does have a cost, and it's usually children who end up footing a majority of the bill. Which brings me to my third point, that couples and society together should strive to make marriages as healthy and long-lasting as possible and divorces a legal, safe, and last resort. You know, you could even say, in contrast to the many conservative rabbis in the ancient Jewish tradition, there are liberal rabbis, the Hillel school, if you're familiar. If you've been on a college campus, there's often a Hillel house. That's the, the liberal Jewish um, kind of category of rabbis. But the rabbi named Jesus and the rabbinical student named Paul, the Apostle Paul, they both wanted to make divorce less dangerous for women and children. They wanted divorce 
to use an old political term, they wanted divorce to be safe, legal, and rare. And by that I mean this, making divorce safe and legal means make divorce based on the law. If you remember the, the, old, the old lessons in Deuteronomy when, when, when Moses was given the rules about divorce, it was possible for a, a husband to divorce a wife for any reason. In fact, the words in scripture are, if the wife displeases him, he can hand her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is like, oh no, not on my watch. No, the only reason you can get divorced is for adultery. You see, it sounds like, it sounds like he's coming down really harsh, but he's trying to protect because previous to this, it was possible to divorce a wife. I mean, previous to people accepting Jesus' teachings as authoritative, which many rabbis did not, of course. You could divorce your wife for any reason. Now, there was some protection for women. There was this kind of progressive strain in Judaism, and there are instances in the Jewish Mishnah or the, or the commentary on the early law. There, there was examples of rabbis deciding in favor of women who have been abused or humiliated by their husband. There's one story I remember reading where a man made his wife pour out the, the dish and bath water, the dirty household water that they, they couldn't use again. He made her pour that on the manure pile outside of the home, which of course then created, I mean gross, splashes and got all over her, very unhygienic and disrespectful, and the rabbis decided she could file divorce against her husband. Now Jesus tightened up the reasons for people to get legally divorced in order to make both spouses, but particularly the women, feel safe in the marriage and to protect the children too. And if we think about it, it really wasn't Jesus kind of coming down hard on people getting divorced. It was Jesus coming down hard on people starting a series of serial marriages, right? You can't divorce your spouse and then remarry, that's adultery. And it wasn't to condemn families for that, primarily it was to stop really manipulative behavior. Let's be honest, things like, like, hey, I'll divorce my wife for the weekend and I'll go stay at the neighbor's house because her husband's gone and then I'll get remarried again. I mean, it was that easy. So it was like trading up your grad school wife for a late career trophy wife or, or trading in your big bellied first husband for an, uh, you know, a washboard abs second husband. That's the kind of stuff that Jesus was trying to condemn. To quote a commentator, divorce does not offer a legal loophole to justify adultery. That is, he, he doesn't come down on divorce to prevent people from fleeing pain or abuse, but he comes down on divorce to prevent people from sacrificing their spouse in pursuit of something that they want more. Some ambition, some lust, some coveting they have for another life, another spouse. So safe and healthy, yes, and rare. For divorce to be rampant in society means the society gets incredibly weak. It's important for not just the individual's sake, but for society's sake, for marriages to be the strong building block of, of all the things in society that happen. And so, rare to bless society, but rare to protect the family too. Rare because it hurts the kids, rare because it hurts the spouses, and rare because it hurts God's heart. But you know, in the family of God, pain-filled, broken things 
don't and shouldn't create stigmas. Pain and broken-filled things aren't stigmas, they're, well, they're situations. They're situations that involve struggle, they're invitations that involve growing in wisdom. And as, you know, as different an individual as our church's elders are, as I was preparing for this, it dawned on me, it's not just Doug and Shannon, two-thirds of the elders on our current elder board, either themselves or their spouses, have gone through a divorce. And when I think about that, I think, no wonder they are so wise. Now, there are people who've gone through divorce and haven't learned a thing. But if you talk to any one of our elders, you will see a depth of wisdom, a depth of empathy, a depth of self-awareness that is incredibly outstanding. And you know, I haven't been divorced. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> but I have been heartbroken. I felt betrayed, I felt wounded, I felt ejected and abandoned. And sometimes it was, quote, the other guy's fault. But a lot of times it was my own, my own pridefulness, my own laziness, my own sinfulness, my own stubbornness. I have been in places where I was humbled and stretched and stressed and, and I needed to learn. And I couldn't be more relieved and grateful to work in God's work alongside the elders we have who, who have gone through an incredible growth experience through the very experience of earlier divorce, where they have learned to trust Jesus to be the redeemer of their stories, to be the healer of their wounds, and to be the guideposts for their future path. And it gives me great pride to know that that's part of the reason why this church of ours, Caw Prairie, does not tolerate stigmatizing people who are broken. It does not leave people who feel alone on the outside looking in. And when we do, it's not from intention, but it's from just missing the mark and screwing up. No. You know, before I close, as I'm speaking about wisdom and what we learn, I, I want to close uh, first with a few more nuggets from Doug and Shannon. So. I'll trade spaces on the couch and let them uh, give you a few more minutes from their own heart. Did any learnings from your first marriage um, help you be better spouses in this current one? Or maybe we should ask you to, I should ask one of the other. <laughs> Is there anything you can attribute specifically to something that happened in your first marriage that's helped you reform either your your errant ways or your pride or something that you can you can look back on now yeah i i mean my biggest learning i i and and it was not i, I would not put this on my ex i i played a very active role in this i don't want to come across as as um placing the blame on, on her because it was definitely both of us. But um, we were we were competitive. We, it was important to be right at the time. It was important to win. Um, and I, that would be a learning that I have um, is that there was there's no there's no winning an argument. There's no 
there, there's going to be conflict in, in any relationship, even the most healthy relationship like like we have. Um, there, there's still going to be conflict, but it's not productive to to be right. It's not productive to to win. Um, so that that would be my learning because I did a whole lot of that the first time around, and, and I feel like I'm a little bit wiser now. It's easy when you're married to someone who's always right. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe didn't figure that out, but I think what I learned is I've always been very um, independent. I was raised by very strong. My grandmother was very strong on my mother's side. My mother, my father died young. She had to be very strong, very independent, um, never relying on a man for anything. And I was raised by my father's parents. And my grandpa was constantly raising me to be independent. Um, I wasn't allowed to go into the kitchen and do any cooking because that was women's work. And, and I was not going to be that woman even though his wife was, and it was perfectly fine. But, um, so... He got, his, he got his food, right? That's right. Um, but I think that caused me being independent. It was hard for me to ever be in a relationship because I, I didn't want to be needy. I didn't want to have to de be dependent on anyone. So it was easy for me to be, this is my path, that's your path, and then we just live in the same house together and, you know, everything's fine. But that doesn't work in a marriage. Um, because pretty soon your paths go like this and all of a sudden you have nothing in common and common and really no common goals or any common reason to stay together. Um, and I think that was sometimes still is a struggle for me, um, but I, I've worked on it a lot and I feel like I've gotten better over the years of understanding that we are in this together. Um, in the beginning, if something would be, go wrong, I'd be like, okay, well, that's just it. It's not going to work. And he'd be like, it's the dishwasher, or it's my shoes. It's it's okay, you know, and because I don't like to fight. I don't, if we fight, I'm like, oh, that's terrible, you know. So I think I have, um, he has helped me grow to that it's okay to be dependent on him. And um, even if he does leave, I'll still be fine, you know, or something happens, I would still be fine if I'm dependent on him now. And um, we're more of a team rather than, you know, solos and we cultivate that intentionally um we we try to have fun together even if it's simple stuff mm -hmm. um and i think that might be something too that would be a learning is is you know there's work and there's raising your kids but neither one of those should be all consuming you you have to you have to be a couple mm -hmm. and do things as a couple and so we're very intentional about that I, I tell people a lot of times the greatest gift you can give your children is a happy marriage. And that happy marriage doesn't just happen. You have to cultivate it. You have to water it so that it will grow. And you have to be intentional about it um, because your instinct is to take care of the kids and the house and work and, you know, tasks. I'm very task-oriented, so you really have to be intentional about taking the time and, and taking those date nights and taking those quiet talks. And it's not neglecting your children at all. It's, it's, a, it's a gift to your children. You know, I started with the story of Hagar early in this message. The story of an immature young servant who's serving an insecure older mistress with a 
Well, with kind of a conflict-avoidant, abdicating man in the middle, there's lots of life lessons there, lots of, lots of reasons why a family would get dysfunctional. But there's one little detail I'd like to draw your attention to before I close, and that's names. See, Genesis 16:11, and I've read this before, said, the angel told Hagar to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord heard his mother's cry of distress. And then after being ejected from the household, of course, Hagar herself ran away, but she encountered God in the middle of that flight. She encountered God and had her understanding of God inverted, her understanding of God transformed. And all of a sudden, she has a lot in common with me and maybe with you. Anyone who's felt the burden of sin and shame, of brokenness, of disillusionment, of loneliness, whether it's divorce or sudden unemployment or, or incarceration or public shame, of failing at something you wanted to succeed at so badly, at being, being blown off by friends you wanted so badly to respect and welcome you, whatever it is, we, we all long not just to be waved at and tolerated, but we long to be truly known and accepted for who we are, brokenness and all. We long to be seen. Not, not a Facebook mirage, not our best Instagram, but we long for people to see us, warts, zits, rashes, screw-ups, and everything and be loved and welcomed despite it all. Two verses after that last one where the angel tells Hagar to name her son Ishmael, the angel, well then Hagar does this. Verse 13 says, after that Hagar started using another name to refer to the Lord, the Lord who had spoken to her. She said to Yahweh, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. If you're divorced or feeling burdened in another way by what life has handed you, or if you're feeling guilty or embarrassed or ashamed at how you've, how you've played the cards that life's given you, if you are embarrassed of how things have turned out, in fact, maybe so embarrassed you don't even want to come to the one place, the one physical place, or the one digital space. You're, you're too embarrassed to even ch put your name in the chat box because you don't want to name who you are in this holy digital space. Please know that this Savior that we talk about, this, this Savior we worship, this Jesus we love, this also, this also is the name of the God who sees you, El Roy. God doesn't see or doesn't stay stuck looking at your stigma or your self-delusion, the soil under your nails or the shame behind your curtains. What Jesus sees in you is a beloved child of God who is knit together in your mother's womb. And regardless of how your family turned out, he has never let you go from his heart and from the family of his children. 
He longs for you to trust him and the crucified and risen Jesus guarantees that you will never be separated from him. This God who sees you. He longs for you to live in the freedom and the joy of a, of a lifelong, intimate, and forgiveness-filled relationship that only trusting Him can bring you. So my friend, if you haven't said yes to that, I challenge you to say it now. Will you say yes to the Jesus who longs for you to trust Him? When Jesus says, trust me, will you say, I do? I pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the mighty name of the mighty Savior who can transform the most broken life into a mighty masterpiece. May that masterpiece have your name on it and may you claim it and be proud of it and show it boldly to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.